Chapter Two, Part One of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackay. The South Sea Bubble, Part One. At length, corruption, like a general flood, did deluge all, and avarice creeping on, spread like a low born mist and hid the sun. Statesmen and patriots plied alike the stocks, peeress and butler shared alike the box, and judges jobbed and bishops bit the town and mighty dukes packed cards for half a crown, Britain was sunk in Lucas' sordid charms. Pope The South Sea Company was originated by the celebrated Harley, Earl of Oxford, in the year 1711, with the view of restoring public credit, which had suffered by the dismissal of the Whig ministry, and of providing for the discharge of the army and navy debentures, and other parts of the floating debt, amounting to nearly ten millions sterling. A company of merchants, at that time without a name, took this debt upon themselves, and the government agreed to secure them for a certain period the interest of six per cent. To provide for this interest, amounting to six hundred thousand pounds per annum, the duties upon wines, vinegar, India goods, wrought silks, tobacco, whale-fins, and some other articles, were rendered permanent. The monopoly of the trade to the South Seas was granted, and the company, being incorporated by Act of Parliament, assumed the title by which it has ever since been known. The minister took great credit to himself for his share in this transaction, and the scheme was always called by his flatterers the Earl of Oxford's masterpiece. Even at this early period of its history, the most visionary ideas were formed by the company and the public of the immense riches of the eastern coast of South America. Everybody had heard of the gold and silver mines of Peru and Mexico. Everyone believed them to be inexhaustible, and that it was only necessary to send the manufactures of England to the coast to be repaid a hundredfold in gold and silver ingots by the natives. A report, industriously spread, that Spain was willing to concede four ports on the coasts of Chile and Peru for the purposes of traffic, increased the general confidence, and for many years the South Sea Company's stock was in high favour. Philip V of Spain, however, never had any intention of admitting the English to a free trade in the ports of Spanish America. Negotiations were set on foot, but their only result was the Asiento contract, or the privilege of supplying the colonies with Negroes for thirty years, and of sending once a year a vessel, limited both as to tonnage and value of cargo, to trade with Mexico, Peru, or Chile. The latter permission was only granted upon the hard condition that the King of Spain should enjoy one-fourth of the profits, 
and a tax of five per cent on the remainder. This was a great disappointment to the Earl of Oxford and his party, who were reminded much oftener than they found agreeable of the Parturiunt Montes Nascitur Ridiculus Mus. But the public confidence in the South Sea Company was not shaken. The Earl of Oxford declared that Spain would permit two ships, in addition to the annual ship, to carry out merchandise during the first year, and a list was published in which all the ports and harbours of these coasts were pompously set forth as open to the trade of Great Britain. The first voyage of the annual ship was not made till the year 1717, and in the following year the trade was suppressed by the rupture with Spain. The King's speech, at the opening of the session of 1717, made pointed allusion to the state of public credit, and recommended that proper measures should be taken to reduce the national debt. The two great monetary corporations, the South Sea Company and the Bank of England, made proposals to Parliament on the 20th of May ensuing. The South Sea Company prayed that their capital stock of ten millions might be increased to twelve, by subscription or otherwise, and offered to accept five per cent instead of six upon the whole amount. The bank made proposals equally advantageous. The House debated for some time, and finally three Acts were passed, called the South Sea Act, the Bank Act, and the General Fund Act. By the first, the proposals of the South Sea Company were accepted, and that body held itself ready to advance the sum of two millions towards discharging the principal and interest of the debt due by the State for the four lottery funds of the ninth and tenth years of Queen Anne. By the second act, the bank received a lower rate of interest for the sum of one million seven hundred and seventy-five thousand and twenty-seven pounds fifteen shillings, due to it by the State, and agreed to deliver up to be cancelled as many exchequer bills as amounted to two millions sterling, and to accept of an annuity of one hundred thousand pounds, being after the rate of five per cent, the whole redeemable at one year's notice. They were further required to be ready to advance, in case of need, a sum not exceeding two million five hundred thousand pounds, upon the same terms of five per cent interest, redeemable by Parliament. The General Fund Act recited the various deficiencies, which were to be made good by the aids derived from the foregoing sources. The name of the South Sea Company was thus continually before the public, though their trade with the South American states produced little or no augmentation of their revenues, they continued to flourish as a monetary corporation. Their stock was in high request, and the directors, buoyed up with success, began to think of new means for extending their influence. The Mississippi scheme of John Law, which so dazzled and captivated the French people, inspired them with an idea that they could carry on the same game in England. The anticipated failure of his plans did not divert them from their intention. Wise in their own conceit, they imagined they could avoid his faults, carry on their schemes for ever, 
and stretch the cord of credit to its extremest tension, without causing it to snap asunder. It was while Law's plan was at its greatest height of popularity, while people were crowding in thousands to the Rue Quincompois, and ruining themselves with frantic eagerness, that the South Sea directors laid before Parliament their famous plan for paying off the national debt. Visions of boundless wealth floated before the fascinated eyes of the people in the two most celebrated countries of Europe. The English commenced their career of extravagance somewhat later than the French. But as soon as the delirium seized them, they were determined not to be outdone. Upon the 22nd of January, 1720, the House of Commons resolved itself into a committee of the whole House, to take into consideration that part of the King's speech at the opening of the session, which related to the public debts, and the proposal of the South Sea Company towards the redemption and sinking of the same. The proposal set forth at great length, and under several heads, the debts of the State, amounting to thirty million nine hundred and eighty-one thousand seven hundred and twelve pounds, which the company were anxious to take upon themselves, upon consideration of five per cent per annum, secured to them until midsummer, 1727, after which time the whole was to become redeemable at the pleasure of the legislature, and the interest to be reduced to four per cent. The proposal was received with great favour, but the Bank of England had many friends in the House of Commons, who were desirous that that body should share in the advantages that were likely to accrue. On behalf of this corporation it was represented that they had performed great and eminent services to the State in the most difficult times, and deserved at least that if any advantage was to be made by public bargains of this nature, they should be preferred before a company that had never done anything for the nation. The further consideration of the matter was accordingly postponed for five days. In the meantime, a plan was drawn up by the governors of the bank. The South Sea Company, afraid that the bank might offer still more advantageous terms to the government than themselves, reconsidered their former proposal, and made some alterations in it, which they hoped would render it more acceptable. The principal change was a stipulation that the government might redeem these debts at the expiration of four years instead of seven, as at first suggested. The bank resolved not to be outbidden in this singular auction, and the governors also reconsidered their first proposal, and sent in a new one. Thus, each corporation having made two proposals, the House began to deliberate. Mr. Robert Walpole was the chief speaker in favour of the bank, and Mr. Aislaby, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the principal advocate on behalf of the South Sea Company. It was resolved, on the 2nd of February, that the proposals of the latter were most advantageous to the country. They were accordingly received, and leave was given to bring in a bill to that effect. Exchange Alley was in a fever of excitement. The company's stock, which had been at a hundred and thirty the previous day, gradually rose to three hundred, 
and continued to rise with the most astonishing rapidity during the whole time that the bill, in its several stages, was under discussion. Mr. Walpole was almost the only statesman in the House who spoke out boldly against it. He warned them, in eloquent and solemn language, of the evils that would ensue. It countenanced, he said, the dangerous practice of stock-jobbing, and would divert the genius of the nation from trade and industry. It would hold out a dangerous lure to decoy the unwary to their ruin, by making them part with the earnings of their labour for a prospect of imaginary wealth. The great principle of the project was an evil of first-rate magnitude. It was to raise artificially the value of the stock, by exciting and keeping up a general infatuation, and by promising dividends out of funds which could never be adequate to the purpose. In a prophetic spirit he added, that if the plan succeeded, the directors would become masters of the government, form a new and absolute aristocracy in the kingdom, and control the resolutions of the legislature. If it failed, which he was convinced it would, the result would bring general discontent and ruin upon the country. Such would be the delusion that when the evil day came, as come it would, the people would start up as from a dream, and ask themselves if these things could have been true. All his eloquence was in vain. He was looked upon as a false prophet, or compared to the horse-raven, croaking omens of evil. His friends, however, compared him to Cassandra, predicting evils which would only be believed when they came home to men's hearths, and stared them in the face at their own boards. Although in former times the house had listened with utmost attention to every word that fell from his lips, the benches became deserted when it was known that he would speak on the South Sea question. The bill was two months in its progress through the House of Commons. During this time every exertion was made by the directors and their friends, and more especially by the chairman, the noted Sir John Blunt, to raise the price of the stock. The most extravagant rumours were in circulation. Treaties between England and Spain were spoken of, whereby the latter was to grant a free trade to all her colonies, and the rich produce of the mines of Potosí-la-Pat was to be brought to England, until silver should be almost as plentiful as iron. For cotton and woollen goods, with which we could supply them in abundance, the dwellers in Mexico were to empty their golden mines. The company of merchants trading to the South Seas would be the richest the world ever saw, and every hundred pounds invested in it would produce hundreds per annum to the stockholder. At last the stock was raised by these means to near four hundred, but after fluctuating a good deal, settled at three hundred and thirty, at which price it remained when the bill passed the Commons by a majority of one hundred and seventy-two against fifty-five. In the House of Lords the bill was hurried through all its stages with unexampled rapidity. On the 4th of April it was read a first time, on the 5th it was read a second time, on the 6th it was committed, and on the 7th was read a third time, and passed. Several peers spoke warmly against the scheme, but their warnings fell upon dull, cold ears. 
a speculating frenzy had seized them as well as the plebeians. Lord North and Grey said the bill was unjust in its nature, and might prove fatal in its consequences, being calculated to enrich the few and impoverish the many. The Duke of Wharton followed, but, as he only retailed at second hand the arguments so eloquently stated by Walpole in the lower house, he was not listened to with even the same attention that had been bestowed upon Lord North and Grey. Earl Cowper followed on the same side, and compared the bill to the famous horse of the siege of Troy. Like that, it was ushered in and received with great pomp and acclamations of joy, but bore within it treachery and destruction. The Earl of Sunderland endeavoured to answer all objections, and on the question being put, there appeared only seventeen peers against, and eighty-three in favour of the project. The very same day on which it passed the Lords, it received the royal assent, and became the law of the land. It seemed at that time as if the whole nation had turned stock-jobbers. Exchange Alley was every day blocked up by crowds, and Cornhill was impassable for the number of carriages. Everybody came to purchase stock. Every fool aspired to be a knave. In the words of a ballad published at the time, and sung about the streets, Then stars and garters did appear among the meaner rabble, To buy and sell, to see and hear, the Jews and Gentiles squabble. The greatest ladies thither came, and plied in chariots daily, Or pawned their jewels for a sum to venture in the alley. Bubbles, to a new tune called The Grand Elixir, or the philosopher's stone discovered. The inordinate thirst of gain that had afflicted all ranks of society was not to be slaked even in the South Sea. Other schemes of the most extravagant kind were started. The share lists were speedily filled up, and an enormous traffic carried on in shares, while of course every means were resorted to to raise them to an artificial value in the market. Contrary to all expectation, South Sea stock fell when the bill received the royal assent. On the 7th of April the shares were quoted at 310, and on the following day at 290. Already the directors had tasted the profits of their scheme, and it was not likely that they should quietly allow the stock to find its natural level without an effort to raise it. Immediately their busy emissaries were set to work. Every person interested in the success of the project endeavoured to draw a knot of listeners around him, to whom he expatiated on the treasures of the South American seas. Exchange Alley was crowded with attentive groups. One rumour alone, asserted with the utmost confidence, had an immediate effect upon the stock. It was said that Earl Stanhope had received overtures in France from the Spanish government to exchange Gibraltar and Port Mahon for some places on the coast of Peru, for the security and enlargement of the trade in the South Seas. Instead of one annual ship trading to those ports, and allowing the King of Spain 25% out of the profits, the company might build and charter as many ships as they pleased, and pay no percentage whatever to any foreign potentate. 
Visions of ingots danced before their eyes, and stock rose rapidly. On the 12th of April, five days after the bill had become law, the directors opened their books for a subscription of a million, at the rate of three hundred pounds for every one hundred pounds capital. Such was the concourse of persons of all ranks, that this first subscription was found to amount to above two millions of original stock. It was to be paid at five payments, of sixty pounds each for every one hundred pounds. In a few days the stock advanced to three hundred and forty, and the subscriptions were sold for double the price of the first payment. To raise the stock still higher, it was declared in a general court of directors on the 21st of April, that the midsummer dividend should be 10%, and that all subscriptions should be entitled to the same. These resolutions answering the end designed, the directors, to improve the infatuation of the moneyed men, opened their books for a second subscription of a million at four hundred per cent. Such was the frantic eagerness of the people of every class to speculate in these funds, that in the course of a few hours no less than a million and a half was subscribed at that rate. In the meantime innumerable joint-stock companies started up everywhere. They soon received the name of Bubbles, the most appropriate that imagination could devise. The populace are often most happy in the nicknames they employ. None could be more apt than that of Bubbles. Some of them lasted for a week or a fortnight, and were no more heard of, while others could not even live out that short span of existence. Every evening produced new schemes, and every morning new projects. The highest of the aristocracy were as eager in this hot pursuit of gain as the most plodding jobber in Cornhill. The Prince of Wales became governor of one company, and is said to have cleared £40,000 by his speculations. The Duke of Bridgewater started a scheme for the improvement of London and Westminster, and the Duke of Chandos another. There were nearly a hundred different projects, each more extravagant and deceptive than the other. To use the words of the political state, they were set on foot and promoted by crafty knaves, then pursued by multitudes of covetous fools, and at last appeared to be, in effect, what their vulgar appellation denoted them to be, bubbles and mere cheats. It was computed that nearly one million and a half sterling was won and lost by these unwarrantable practices, to the impoverishment of many a fool, and the enriching of many a rogue. Some of these schemes were plausible enough, and had they been undertaken at a time when the public mind was unexcited, might have been pursued with advantage to all concerned. But they were established merely with the view of raising the shares in the market. The projectors took the first opportunity of a rise to sell out, and next morning the scheme was at an end. Maitland, in his History of London, gravely informs us that one of the projects which received great encouragement was for the establishment of a company to make deal boards out of sawdust. This is no doubt intended as a joke, but there is abundance of evidence to show that dozens of schemes, hardly a whit more reasonable, lived their little day, 
ruining hundreds ere they fell. One of them was for a wheel for perpetual motion, capital one million. Another was for encouraging the breed of horses in England, and improving of glebe and church lands, and repairing and rebuilding parsonage and vicarage houses. Why the clergy, who were so mainly interested in the latter clause, should have taken so much interest in the first, is only to be explained on the supposition that the scheme was projected by a knot of the fox-hunting parsons once so common in England. The shares of this company were rapidly subscribed for, but the most absurd and preposterous of all, and which showed more completely than any other the utter madness of the people, was one started by an unknown adventurer, entitled, A Company for Carrying On an Undertaking of Great Advantage, But Nobody to Know What It Is. Were not the facts stated by scores of credible witnesses, it would be impossible to believe that any person could have been duped by such a project. The man of genius, who essayed this bold and successful inroad upon public credulity, merely stated in his prospectus that the required capital was half a million, in five thousand shares of a hundred pounds each, deposit two pounds per share. Each subscriber, paying his deposit, would be entitled to one hundred pounds per annum per share. How this immense profit was to be obtained, he did not condescend to inform them at that time, but promised that in a month full particulars should be duly announced, and a call made for the remaining ninety-eight pounds of the subscription. Next morning at nine o'clock, this great man opened an office in Cornhill. Crowds of people beset his door, and when he shut up at three o'clock, he found that no less than one thousand shares had been subscribed for, and the deposits paid. He was thus in five hours the winner of two thousand pounds. He was philosopher enough to be contented with his venture, and set off the same evening for the continent. He was never heard of again. Well might Swift exclaim, comparing Change Alley to a gulf in the South Sea, Subscribers here by thousands float, and jostle one another down, each paddling in his leaky boat, and here they fish for gold, and drown. Now buried in the depths below, now mounted up to heaven again, they reel and stagger to and fro, at their wit's end, like drunken men. Meantime secure on Garraway cliffs, a savage race by shipwrecks fed, lie waiting for the foundered skiffs, and strip the bodies of the dead. Another fraud that was very successful was that of the globe permits, as they were called. They were nothing more than square pieces of playing cards, on which was the impression of a seal in wax, bearing the sign of the globe tavern, in the neighbourhood of Exchange Alley, with the inscription of sailcloth permits. The possessors enjoyed no other advantage from them, than permission to subscribe at some future time to a new sailcloth manufactory, projected by one who was then known to be a man of fortune, but who was afterwards involved in the peculation and punishment of the South Sea directors. These permits sold for as much as sixty guineas in the alley. Persons of distinction of both sexes were deeply engaged in all these bubbles, 
those of the male sex going to the taverns and coffee-houses to meet their brokers, and the ladies resorting for the same purpose to the shops of milliners and haberdashers. But it did not follow that all these people believed in the feasibility of the schemes to which they subscribed. It was enough for their purpose that their shares would, by stock-jobbing arts, be soon raised to a premium, when they got rid of them, with all expedition, to the really credulous. So great was the confusion of the crowd in the alley, that shares in the same bubble were known to have been sold at the same instant, ten per cent higher, at one end of the alley than at the other. Sensible men beheld the extraordinary infatuation of the people with sorrow and alarm. There were some both in and out of Parliament who foresaw clearly the ruin that was impending. Mr. Walpole did not cease his gloomy forebodings. His fears were shared by all the thinking few, and impressed most forcibly upon the government. On the 11th of June, the day the Parliament rose, the King published a proclamation, declaring that all these unlawful projects should be deemed public nuisances, and prosecuted accordingly, and forbidding any broker, under penalty of five hundred pounds, from buying or selling any shares in them. Notwithstanding this proclamation, roguish speculators still carried them on, and the deluded people still encouraged them. On the 12th of July, an order of the Lord's Justice assembled in Privy Council was published, dismissing all the petitions that had been presented for patents and charters, and dissolving all the bubble companies. The following copy of their Lordship's order, containing a list of all these nefarious projects, would not be deemed uninteresting at the present time, when, at periodic intervals, there is but too much tendency in the public mind to indulge in similar practices. At the Council Chamber, Whitehall, the 12th day of July, 1720. Present, Their Excellencies, the Lords, Justices in Council. Their Excellencies, the Lords, Justices in Council, taking into consideration the many inconveniences arising to the public from several projects set on foot for raising of joint stock for various purposes, and that a great many of His Majesty's subjects have been drawn in to part with their money on pretence of assurances that their petitions for patents and charters to enable them to carry on the same would be granted. To prevent such impositions, their excellencies this day ordered the said several petitions, together with such reports from the Board of Trade, and from His Majesty's Attorney and Solicitor General, as had been obtained thereon, to be laid before them, and after mature consideration thereof, were pleased, by advice of His Majesty's Privy Council, to order that the said petitions be dismissed, which are as follow. 1. Petition of several persons, praying letters patent for carrying on a fishing trade by the name of the Grand Fishery of Great Britain. 2. Petition of the Company of the Royal Fishery of England, praying letters patent for such further powers as will effectually contribute to carry on the said fishery. 3. Petition of George James, on behalf of himself and diverse persons of distinction, concerned in a national fishery, praying letters patent of incorporation, to enable them to carry on the same. 4. 
petition of several merchants, traders, and others, whose names are thereunto subscribed, praying to be incorporated for reviving and carrying on a whale-fishery to Greenland and elsewhere. 5. Petition of Sir John Lambert, and others thereto subscribing, on behalf of themselves and a great number of merchants, praying to be incorporated for carrying on a Greenland trade, and particularly a whale-fishery in Davis's Straits. 6. Another petition for a Greenland trade. 7. Petition of several merchants, gentlemen and citizens, praying to be incorporated for buying and building of ships to let or freight. 8. Petition of Samuel Antrim and others, praying for letters patent for sowing hemp and flax. 9. Petition of several merchants, masters of ships, sailmakers, and manufacturers of sailcloth, praying a charter of incorporation to enable them to carry on and promote the said manufactory by a joint stock. 10. Petition of Thomas Boyd and several hundred merchants, owners and masters of ships, sailmakers, weavers and other traders, praying a charter of incorporation, empowering them to borrow money for purchasing lands, in order to the manufacturing sailcloth and fine Holland. 11. Petition on behalf of several persons interested in a patent granted by the late King William and Queen Mary for the making of linen and sailcloth, praying that no charter may be granted to any persons whatsoever for making sailcloth, but that the privilege now enjoyed by them may be confirmed, and likewise an additional power to carry on the cotton and cotton silk manufactures. 12. Petition of several citizens, merchants and traders in London, and others, subscribers to a British stock for a general insurance from fire in any part of England, praying to be incorporated for carrying on the said undertaking. 13. Petition of several of His Majesty's loyal subjects of the City of London and other parts of Great Britain, praying to be incorporated for carrying on a general insurance from losses by fire within the Kingdom of England. 14. Petition of Thomas Surges and others His Majesty's subjects thereto subscribing, in behalf of themselves and others, subscribers to a fund of £1,200,000, for carrying on a trade to His Majesty's German dominions, praying to be incorporated by the name of the Harburg Company. 15. Petition of Edward Jones, a dealer in timber, on behalf of himself and others, praying to be incorporated for the importation of timber from Germany. 16. Petition of several merchants of London, praying a charter of incorporation for carrying on a salt work. 17. Petition of Captain MacFedris of London, merchant, on behalf of himself and several merchants, clothiers, hatters, dyers, and other traders, praying a charter of incorporation, empowering them to raise a sufficient sum of money to purchase lands for planting and rearing a wood called madder, for the use of dyers. 18. Petition of Joseph Galendo of London, snuff-maker, praying a patent for his invention to prepare and cure Virginia tobacco for snuff in Virginia, and making it into the same in all His Majesty's dominions. List of Bubbles 
The following bubble companies were by the same order declared to be illegal and abolished accordingly. 1. For the importation of Swedish iron. 2. For supplying London with sea coal. Capital, three millions. 3. For building and rebuilding houses throughout all England. Capital, three millions. 4. For making of muslin. 5. For carrying on and improving the British alum works. 6. For effectually settling the island of Blanco and Sal Tartagus. 7. For supplying the town of Deal with fresh water. 8. For the importation of Flanders lace. 9. For the improvement of lands in Great Britain. Capital, four millions. 10. For encouraging the breed of horses in England and improving of glebe and church lands and for repairing and rebuilding parsonage and vicarage houses. 11. For making of iron and steel in Great Britain. 12. For improving the land in the county of Flint. Capital, one million. 13. For purchasing lands to build on. Capital, two millions. 14. For trading in hair. 15. For erecting salt works in Holy Island. Capital, two millions. 16. For buying and selling estates, and lending money on mortgage. 17. For carrying on an undertaking of great advantage, but nobody to know what it is. 18. For paving the streets of London. Capital, two millions. 19. For furnishing funerals to any part of Great Britain. 20. For buying and selling lands, and lending money at interest. Capital, Five millions. 21. For carrying on the royal fishery of Great Britain. Capital, ten millions. 22. For assuring of seamen's wages. 23. For erecting loan offices for the assistance and encouragement of the industrious. Capital, two millions. 24. For purchasing and improving leasable lands. Capital, four millions. 25. For importing pitch and tar and other naval stores from North Britain and America. 26. For the clothing, felt and pantile trade. 27. For purchasing and improving a manor and royalty in Essex. 28. For insuring of horses. Capital, two millions. 29. For exporting the woollen manufacture and importing copper, brass and iron. Capital, four millions. 30. For a grand dispensary. Capital, three millions. 31. For erecting mills and purchasing lead mines. Capital, two millions. 32. For improving the art of making soap. 33. For a settlement on the island of Santa Cruz. 34. For sinking pits and smelting lead ore in Derbyshire. 35. For making glass bottles and other glass. 36. For a wheel for perpetual motion. Capital, one million. 37. For improving of gardens. 38. For insuring and increasing children's fortunes. 39. For entering and loading goods at the custom house and for negotiating business for merchants. 40. For carrying on a woollen manufacture in the north of England. 
41. For importing walnut trees from Virginia. Capital, 2 millions. 42. For making Manchester stuffs of thread and cotton. 43. For making Joppa and Castile soap. 44. For improving the wrought iron and steel manufactures of this kingdom. Capital, 4 millions. 45. For dealing in lace, hollands, cambrics, lawns, etc. Capital, 2 millions. 46. For trading in and improving certain commodities of the produce of this kingdom, etc. Capital, 3 millions. 47. For supplying the London markets with cattle. 48. For making looking-glasses, coach-glasses, etc. Capital, 2 millions. 49. For working the tin and lead mines in Cornwall and Derbyshire. 50. For making rape oil. 51. For importing beaver fur. Capital, 2 millions. 52. For making pasteboard and packing paper. 53. For importing of oils and other materials used in the woollen manufacture. 54. For improving and increasing the silk manufactures. 55. For lending money on stock, annuities, tallies, etc. 56. For paying pension to widows and others at a small discount. Capital, 2 millions. 57. For improving malt liquors. Capital, 4 millions. 58. For a grand American fishery. 59. For purchasing and improving the fenny lands in Lincolnshire. Capital, 2 millions. 60. For improving the paper manufacture of Great Britain. 61. The Bottomry Company. 62. For drying malt by hot air. 63. For carrying on a trade in the river Orinoco. 64. For the more effectual making of bays in Colchester and other parts of Great Britain. 65. For buying of naval stores, supplying the victualling, and paying the wages of the workmen. 66. For employing poor artificers and furnishing merchants and others with watches. 67. For improvement of tillage and the breed of cattle. 68. Another for the improvement of our breed in horses. 69. Another for a horse insurance. 70. For carrying on the corn trade of Great Britain. 71. For insuring to all masters and mistresses the losses they may sustain by servants. Capital, three millions. 72. For erecting houses or hospitals for taking in and maintaining illegitimate children. Capital, two millions. 73. For bleaching coarse sugars without the use of fire or loss of substance. 74. For building turnpikes and wharfs in Great Britain. 75. For insuring from thefts and robberies. 76. For extracting silver from lead. 77. For making china and delftware. Capital, one million. 78. For importing tobacco and exporting it again to Sweden and the north of Europe. Capital, four millions. 79. For making iron with pit coal. 80. 
for furnishing the cities of London and Westminster with hay and straw. Capital, three millions. 81. For a sail and packing cloth manufactory in Ireland. 82. For taking up ballast. 83. For buying and fitting out ships to suppress pirates. 84. For the importation of timber from Wales. Capital, two millions. 85. For rock salt. 86. For the transmutation of quicksilver into a malleable fine metal. Beside these bubbles, many others sprang up daily, in spite of the condemnation of the government and the ridicule of the still sane portion of the public. The print shops teemed with caricatures, and the newspapers with epigrams and satires upon the prevalent folly. An ingenious card-maker published a pack of South Sea playing cards, which are now extremely rare, each card containing, besides the usual figures of a very small size in one corner, a caricature of a bubble company, with appropriate verses underneath. One of the most famous bubbles was Puckle's Machine Company, for discharging round and square cannonballs and bullets, and making a total revolution in the art of war. Its pretensions to public favour were thus summed up on the eight of spades, a rare invention to destroy the crowd of fools at home, instead of fools abroad. Fear not, my friends, this terrible machine. They're only wounded who have shares therein. The Nine of Hearts was a caricature of the English Copper and Brass Company, with the following epigram. The headlong fool that wants to be a swapper of gold and silver coin for English copper may in change alley prove himself an ass and give rich metal for adulterate brass the eight of diamonds celebrated the company for the colonization of acadia with this doggerel he that is rich and wants to fool away a good round sum in north america let him subscribe himself a headlong sharer and ass's ears shall honour him or bearer and in a similar style every card of the pack exposed some knavish scheme, and ridiculed the persons who were its dupes. It was computed that the total amount of the sums proposed for carrying on these projects was upwards of three hundred millions sterling. End of chapter 2, part 1